Good morning. I want to just brag about our church a little bit this morning for a minute or two. Just uh, express how thankful I am for the body of Christ and being able to be a part of what we see happening and taking place here. The month of December, as you've heard from the announcements, is a very busy time. There's a lot of opportunity. There's a lot of need. And it's always amazing for me to see just the mobility of the body of Christ, how it responds to the call and things like the angel tree and other opportunities to come forward and to serve and to fill the gaps and things. And so um, this weekend in particular is just one of those special weekends to see a lot of that in action. Uh, within the kind of the broader context of the busy month of December, we had a memorial service yesterday, a celebration of life for Cindy Burbine, who... Um, we, uh, lost at least in the sense of on this earth, um, just a, a little over a week ago to, um, cancer and, uh, Jeff and Cindy have been, uh, I, I would say quietly a part of our church for a long time and quietly made some very, um, close friends and, and that sort of thing. And that's just kind of, you know, their personality and such. So some of you may not have even known who we were praying for when we said we're praying for Cindy and getting her updates from time to time and, but there were several people in the church that had drawn very close to her and were able to, you know, support them in their difficulty. And Jeff has, um, you know, reached out to the church and, and come in and made visits with me and all that kind of stuff. And so it's just been kind of a, an amazing process to be a part of. And yet still, even though they weren't broadly known by everybody in the church, so many people stepped forward to help them out with that service yesterday through food donations and time dedicated and all those kinds of things. And so I just want to thank, you know, several people specifically, but I don't know who dropped off all the food and everything. So I can't mention you by name, but, um, I, I know that yesterday, Nancy Burton and Laura Corette really ran everything in terms of hospitality for us yesterday and did such an incredible job. And, um, with Ron Dunbar and um, Gavin and Jen Phillips handling all of the kind of the technical aspects of it. It was really one of the the more um, emotional or, or kind of uh, scripturally and spiritually satisfying memorial services I've been a part of. It was really incredible that way. And then John Phillips, our, our buddy John from the worship team who's gone off to school and is now in Minneapolis, I believe. He, he had a song written. Uh, to go with the Burbines through this difficulty and recorded it and sent it. And we were able to play that yesterday and it was extremely moving. And, and, um, and then of course, all the, like I said, just the donations of making the day happen. Uh, their family was incredibly grateful. Family from away, family from other churches up in the Bangor area and stuff saw this church in action and were just really blown away and, and impressed. And so, um, that's the kind of thing that it's good for you to know because you don't even realize sometimes it's happening. And yet the uh, the spirit is moving through the body of Christ and doing some incredible things. And so I just really appreciate all of you and uh, and the work that goes into to making us uh, who we are and who we've been, you know, for so many people. So thank you for that. Um, if you already saw, did we see the yeah the sermon title? Does that make anybody else uncomfortable? Jesus is our humble servant. I know maybe if you've kind of been studying your Bible and you see that as a concept, you're like, no, I get it. You know, I understand that he's our example for service and everything. But it makes me uncomfortable to label who we just sang about, the savior of the world, the creator of all things, the one who who left his home in glory to to condescend, to come to broken mankind. And then for us to label him our humble servant. But yet that is what we're going to see in the scriptures as we get into John 13. And for the previous 12 chapters, what I've attempted to do is title every sermon with a different aspect or a different descriptor or a different title of who Jesus is. Because he is the theme. He is the thrust of the entire book of John. He's, of course, the theme and the thrust of the entire Bible. And so John's been able to show us glimpses and, and, and uh, perspectives of all the different facets of who Jesus is. And yet when we come to the scripture today and we see that he's our humble uh, servant, that starts to mess with us a little bit because we are constantly battling a definition of love and action that the world has put uh, in, in, uh, in full swing. And we're constantly as God's people trying to figure out, am I, am I doing this right? 
Or am I giving in to what is so popular and what has become destructive? It's important for us as God's people to really wrestle with this idea of love and to constantly keep it under the microscope in our lives. Am I loving like the world system has designed and created? Or am I loving what the scriptures make to be quite opposite? Am I loving in a biblical way? Culture says that if you are going to, uh, if I'm going to love you, you need to be compatible with me. You think about the dating sites and the different things that have all the expectations of how you meet my needs. If you check off my boxes, this is probably going to be pretty good and I'll be able to love you. Or we might say, um, actually, you can show me love by giving me uh, um, respect, which is certainly a good thing. The Bible wouldn't be anti-respect. But the expectation is you have to respect me the moment you don't respect me. I'm out of love with you. Or love for me gives me the freedom to be who I want to be, who I feel I need to be, what I'm compelled to be in the moment. You can't judge me. Or love might be my freedom of choice and just my ability to kind of make my own way or my avenue and my pursuit of my own pleasure. All of these things now have been packaged to be a positive definition of love. And if you found it, man, good on you. That's great. You're in a great relationship until it's not. The Bible comes at it from a different perspective and shakes our tree a little bit because all of its example of love, all of its instruction of love is counter to what culture celebrates with love. There are so many examples cover to cover. This book has, it is an entire example of this kind of love. So just for the moment, let me pull out a couple verses. First Corinthians 10. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Pretty straightforward. Do good for other people, right? Galatians 5. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Now we're like, okay, now we're on it. This is what we've been looking for, freedom. Now I have the, the freedom to exercise my will in the way that I choose to exercise it. Paul goes, eh, er. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. The flesh, as we've defined over the last couple of weeks, is the innermost us, who we really are in our core, that Christ is redeeming, that the Holy Spirit is, is managing in our lives. Don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. And, and I don't believe that this is a command just because sin has entered the equation. We've been saying an awful lot that God had created us in perfection, that he gave us the garden of uh, uh, the garden to uh, to live in uh, fellowship with him and in perfect harmony. And Adam and Eve said, "Ah, it's just not quite enough. I want some autonomy. I want to be able to make up my own rules. I want to do my own thing. I want to be like God. And so sin entered the equation. Now, this isn't I don't believe this form of love is a sentence because we blew it back in the garden. Well, you know, you had the opportunity to be this way, but since sin entered the equation, now you got to start serving other people. This is the characteristic of God. So we could say it this way, that you and I were designed to care for others more than ourselves. This is in our deepest design to live for the good of other people, even more so than in ourselves. So this is going to help us with a perspective coming in to John 13. Now, we've already been to Mary and Martha's house. We saw that there was a meal that was being shared together. We saw there was this intimate connection between the friends of Jesus who were celebrating the fact that he had the ability and he chose to bring Lazarus back from the dead. He gave their brother back to them. And so they said, come on, we want to throw you a party. We want to say thank you for all that you've done. And what does Mary do in her in her um, humble and kind of attentive uh, spirit. She, she breaks open the most expensive ointment. We said that it was worth probably like a year's wages and she anoints the feet of Jesus. It's this very close setting. It's this very personal, um, sort of anointing. Jesus says, don't falter for this. She's preparing me ahead of time for my burial. And people are like, huh, what? Ah, we'll move on. Don't know what he means by that. And now we come to chapter 13 and now we're starting to move into, remember last week we said this is the rest of the scripture, the rest of uh, the book of John is going to cover the final week of Jesus' life. These next few chapters are going to cover the final night of Jesus before the crucifixion. There's a lot to accomplish in a very little bit of time. 
And what we need to see is that Jesus is bringing in his team. He's huddling them together. It's getting very intimate. Now it's getting very um, um, exclusive. So the words he's going to say over the next several chapters have been elevated in importance to the ears of those that have been following him. The crowds have gone away. The miracles have, have quieted down. And Jesus has a lot he wants to get off his chest and to share with his team. And it takes on the tone of a very sobering reality. In a couple of chapters, he's going to let them know, hey, they're going to persecute you, you know. He's going to say they're going to put you out of the synagogues. And indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. It's getting very clear to these guys that that this is part of the mission, that this is part of the plan, and they're in it now. So when Jesus is saying, do you believe? Are you ready to take these steps? Are you following me down this road? He's being really upfront with them. Hey, this is going to cost you everything. But it's not just all doom and gloom. He's also going to give them shepherding comfort. He's going to say to them, I'll never leave you or forsake you. I'm going to pray that the father will love you. I know he will. He's promised he will just as I love you. And so he's promising the presence of God in all of these things so that they're getting this mix of, hey, this is going to be painful. This is going to be ugly, but this is what matters. This is what's important. And you won't be going through it alone. So with that, we come to John 13 and the scriptures say, now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the father, that hour meaning season, it's that time now. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And just very quick, that doesn't mean that the time was coming to an end. What it means is other scriptures have actually translated a little bit better to be, he loved them to the fullest, to the deepest extent. Those that the father gave him, this intimate group of followers, these are his buddies and his, his comrades, the ones that were going with him. He loved them to the fullest. Verse 2. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. We've heard about the Passover a lot. There's been a couple that we've already seen happen in the book of John. And this is the third Passover now in Jesus' public ministry and his final Passover that he'll be participating with. This is where the Jews on an annual basis in the springtime, they celebrate the exodus, the, the marching out of Egypt, out of slavery, the freedom that God awarded them, the guidance that he gave them, the provision that he gave them along the way and holding them together. And so it becomes a huge celebration. It's the, the height of all things. And they're doing this Passover feast, which all of the elements of it are just loaded with symbolism. And the kids in that environment, typically in these family settings, are prompted to ask, what makes this night so special? It's like that's what kicks off the whole instruction of what Passover is. And the scriptures don't say that any of the disciples ask this question, but they've been through this routine a bunch. And you can imagine, at least in the heart of hearts, they're saying so it, it, clearly he's, he's going to be preparing this supper and they've been finding all these provisions and getting ready for the big meal and all these kinds of things. And they're doing it on time. And somebody's thinking, who asked the question? Who kicks this thing off? And they'd be thinking to themselves, what makes this night so special? And they would expect the typical answers. Well, what it means is we were led out of, and it would all be true and good. But Jesus answers the question with an ass, uh, with an action. He gives them instead a precursor to the greatest sacrifice in all of history. It's kind of a preview of what he'll say in John chapter 15, where he says, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. What Jesus is leaving now is a legacy. He's going to make it very clear by the end of this passage. I want you to do what you're seeing me do. And the legacy that he's leaving us is this radical or this new kind of mission to give ourselves away. He's saying, I'm going to demonstrate it now, but I'm just giving you a picture of what I'm about to do. Remember what we said. He knows who the ultimate enemy is. He knows the ultimate strategy for victory. And Jesus is going to give us, he's giving them specifically, but for all of us, for an example, a new kind of leader. Jesus is marching to war. 
and it looks passive. It looks like because he comes in on a donkey, he's coming. Remember we said this at the triumphal entry, he comes in on a donkey instead of a war horse. And the donkey was a symbol of peace. Everything looks passive. It looks like he's losing. It looks like he's giving up. It looks like he's folding. But he's going to war. But the, the uniform that he's wearing is not the militaristic one that they expect to see, the one that's intimidating looking and the one that, that uh, commands respect just by looking at it. No. He dons a different uniform. The rest of verse 4 says that he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Well, they knew what this meant. The only people they ever saw around a household looking like that were the servants. They knew that he was preparing to do something to take care of somebody else. That's the uniform of a servant or a slave, more specifically. And he's choosing this posture of a servant, I'm sure, to the shock of those that are in the room with him. But isn't this the Christmas message? Isn't this what we celebrate whenever we come into the month of December? That Jesus put on different clothes than we expected. That he came wrapped in skin, in human skin, much like his creation. And, and came packaged in a, in a humble manger, smelling of barn animals. Not intimidating at all. Instead, relatable, wrapped in swaddling clothes. He came to do that to meet the need of all humanity, which is the payment for our sin. So Jesus has always been wrapped in this unsuspecting garb. In the way that we didn't think he would come to us. To prove a point, to, to state a message, to accomplish a task. And it's on the disciples, and of course it's on us, not to miss the metaphor. And so Jesus comes with a different uniform. He also comes with a different method. Verse 5, what does he proceed to do? You know the story. He poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Pretty gross to us. Not a method I think we should resurrect, by the way. There's a cultural reason for foot washing. Yes, it symbolizes humility and all those kinds of things, but it also serves a very practical purpose. They wore open-toed sandals and they walked on dusty roads. So the equivalent of kind of like scraping off the bottom of our shoes or something, somebody would say, your feet are dirty. Let's get them washed and cleaned up for you. And it became an act of hospitality and, and, uh, and it became a, an act of humility. And so it's removing this dirt from these dusty roads off of these people's feet. But they're, of course, seeing this as something entirely different. This is much bigger than just the practical aspect of cleaning their feet. They're shocked and appalled by this because the only people that really ever did this were slaves and servants. But it goes even deeper than that. They weren't even Jewish slaves. They thought that was even too beneath people of our own kind. We're going to save that task for the Gentile servant in the household. Can you imagine the humiliation, the embarrassment that all the servants and the slaves feel like they're on equal footing until it comes time for foot washing. And then there's like a pecking order. Like, well, you were born in the, with the right blood, so you don't have to do the foot washing. We're going to save it for that guy over there. The lowest of the lows is how they would look at it culturally. So Jesus isn't just doing a kind and practical act. He is taking on the identity of the lowest among them. There's a, there's a, a really great irony to the timing of all of this. And I, and I think it would be hysterical to see the uh, disciples writing the gospel accounts and going, Oh, that's right. While Jesus was doing this, we just got done fighting with each other. And, and, and Luke tells us what they were fighting about. John omits it, but Luke, maybe it was too painful for John to write down. It was most likely because it wasn't, you know, as, as uh, true to his text or whatever, but Luke, is, it's recorded for us in Luke 22. It says, a, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. I'm better than you. No, I'm better than you. I bet he likes me more. I bet he likes me more. He said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who's the greater, one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you 
as the one who serves. What a constant message from Jesus. So constant in every act. We've been watching him remove himself from more fame, from more head swelling uh, receptivity from all of the crowds and everything. And he just says, no, that's not what I'm here for. I'm, I'm accomplishing a mission and your, your applause and celebration of me, although on the surface it will look like worship and adoration. Really, I know what it is. It's manipulation and I'm not here for it. So he moves on to the mission. And yet these guys are constantly thinking you're missing a better opportunity. This is how we win. We ride that train, not the one that you're on. What this little dispute tells us, because this is us, by the way. Uh, you know, if you ever want to be embarrassed, ask the Lord to give you a snapshot of your last week and the things that you fought over, the things that you crave, the things that you struggled and strive for and stuff, and then compare it to like the perfection of Jesus and be like, how would Jesus have handled it? Probably not like I did on Tuesday. And, and these guys are looking back on their Tuesday or whatever day and everything, and they're getting ready to, and they're going, why were we fighting over this after seeing all that Jesus accomplished? But this is what the gospel means to you and me. I use that phrase often about the fact that we are striving to be a gospel-centered church, right? Well, this is where it, where the rubber meets the road. I could sum up gospel-centered with just two little words. We've been talking about it a lot with our staff, and we've been trying to keep this before us. The gospel is the difference between do and done. What do I need to do so God gets off my back? What do I need to do so God's happy with me? What do I need to do so I can have a better life? That's all the do, 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 do that human beings invent in order to make their life work out. And Jesus is saying, I've done it all. I've accomplished it. I came and fulfilled it in perfection and paid the price that you couldn't pay. And that gets weird for us because like, well, there's got to be something I could do. He says, yeah, there is. But not to put the cart before the horse, not to earn what I've already paid for, but for a different reason. You see, what this little tiff uh, demonstrates for us is that even our best imitation of Jesus' sacrificial life comes from a place of selfishness. We can't do sacrifice properly apart from the Holy Spirit in our lives. Jesus already did it perfectly for us. Not just as an example, but as an act of provision. In churches all across the country, this kind of message would come up and Jesus would be lauded as a great example of how we serve one another. And they'd be right. Jesus himself says, I've given you this as an example. But where we miss the mark is that we think we can do it to a satisfying degree. You know, whatever I take from the angel tree or whatever I do for the guy ringing the bell outside the, the of Walmart or, you know, again, still I'm looking for the little old lady that's waiting across the street. I don't think she exists, but we always, you know, how many little old ladies do you help across the street and everything? We do those things. If we're being honest before the cross, we do those things because we want it to count to feel good about who we are. That's the curse of us living in this flesh that we have. At some point, we just surrender it and say, I'm going to do it because you've called me to do it and it's right for me to do, but I don't expect this to be all that great. I don't expect this to work towards earning my points for all of eternity. I can't do that. Jesus did it perfectly for me. Jesus engages in this act because the plan to defeat the real enemy, which is the world, the flesh, and the devil, was to let go of what we hold dearest. He had just called us. Those that are willing to lay down their life will find it for my sake. Those that cling to their life. Remember we said it was that psyche. It was that innermost us. That's the one I want to preserve. That's the one I want to serve. That's the one I want to coddle and take care of. You got to let that go. And if you bury that life, it's like planting a seed in the ground that will eventually plant and, and, and grow and flourish for the glory of God and for the good of others. We're at the mercy of all of his goodness. The right next step that you and I take, if it's apart from his doing, is empty. I want you to just hear this statement before we move on to the next point. I think it's a culmination of the last several weeks that we've been building up to. 
The best vantage point for God's glory is at the feet of other people. That's just the way it is. We are called, I am called to serve you. You are called to serve somebody else. And we are here in this life for that purpose. It's how we were created, as we said at the outset. But it's also the best vantage point of when we can actually see God at work. We can see his name exalted. We can see his glory lifted high. It's at the feet of other people as we're serving them. Jesus was a new kind of leader. They had to wrap their heads and their hearts around it. And even as it's being demonstrated in front of them, they're still bickering about who gets a better seat around the table when they're in glory. But Jesus gave us a new kind of relationship, not one built on you better do this so you'll be okay with me. But it was a, a, a relationship built on trusting in something deeper. Let's go on in verse six. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, like, if you're looking at the title of this sermon and you're reacting like, Lord, do you wash my feet? We know Peter. We know he's going to be cranked up. We know he's going to be zealous. We know he's going to be like, hey, no, this is not acceptable. I'm not going to let this happen. But in this instance, I think we can really relate to this. We know who he is and he's coming. He's bending down. He's getting ready. Not just because we don't want our feet touched. Can I get an amen? All right. Stay away from my feet. It's not just because of that. Peter's recognizing this doesn't belong. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. So Jesus answered him, what I'm doing, you don't understand. Typical Peter, typical human. You don't get it. You just got to hold, hold on, put the seatbelt on and trust me. Because afterward, you will understand. So Peter said to him, you shall, and in what the language is saying here is not for all of eternity, never, ever, ever shall you wash my feet. I won't let it happen. I won't stand for it or sit for it. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no partnership. You have no share. You have no fellowship with me. So Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only then, but also my hands and my head. Just don't stop because if that's the dividing line, if I don't let you do this, that means you and I don't have any working relationship or no partnership. I can't risk that. But we can imagine Peter's shock. Not in a gazillion years. This isn't right. I should be the one serving you. Imagine us knowing all that we know about Jesus now recognizing the impact he's had in our lives, understanding the forgiveness of the sin debt that we've offered to him. Imagine him coming to serve us and us just being like, well, it's about time. We would never, th if he was before us to do that, we would never think to say that. The question is, do we do that though in theory? Do we do it in, in, in the negative sense? If he doesn't come through and wash our feet, do we like, hey, where's the foot washing already? Where's the service to me? If he's in front of us and he starts to wrap his, his, uh, his towel in there and everything, we're like, Hey, no, no, I know where this is going. Don't even start. No, I'm, I'm, I'm getting your feet. But we forget because he's not physically before us how difficult it is to surrender to that service, to not demand it. I also like how Jesus doesn't just dismiss uh, Peter's passion or his zeal. He doesn't just smirk it off. And go, ah, Peter, just being Peter. No big deal. He corrects him. I think in his heart of hearts, he admires some aspect of Peter's zeal. And I think he finds it adorable. But at the same time, he says, hey, 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 I'm not going to let you get away with that. Peter, you're in this with me, aren't you? If you don't let me do this, we, we blow the whole picture up. We don't, we don't get to, um, uh, propagate this metaphor. We don't get to send it down the, down the road. And if you, you blow this now, then it's, it's not going to land with you when the time is right. So Jesus corrects him. He appreciates him. He forgives him in that sense, but he corrects him. Jesus is giving us a new application to this relationship. He's giving us a new understanding. He even asks him, he says, you're going to, he says to him, you're going to understand this later. It's going to make sense after all this is played out after I'm resurrected. And we know specifically what this is going to mean for Peter, because Peter is going to walk through the, the deepest shame ever in his life. It's, it's going to be coming right up. 
where, where he's like, no, I'm not going to let you do this. You can't do this. This is not right. I'm going to go to the end with you. And Peter's, uh, Jesus says to him, hey, you're going to deny me before this night's over. And we know that on the other side of that, though, is after Jesus comes back, he goes and he targets Peter. He finds him and he says, we made it. We're good. You and me. Don't blow this, Peter. Don't give up now. You see, Peter's passion or his zeal or whatever positive thing we want to put on what he was doing was blocking his perspective. For all of Peter's energy and all the things that we could say, well, hey, sometimes that just gets things done, all that sort of stuff. I understand that from a human perspective. But the problem is, is that Peter wasn't being humble enough to receive the service that Jesus was offering to him. This whole process that Peter's about to go through, though, is going to humble him greatly. Anything that Jesus is willing to do for him, he will gladly receive in just a little while. This is part of our problem because humility is a key ingredient to both properly receiving service and also providing it. You might say, well, I know plenty of people who aren't that humble that are just needy and greedy and they have no problem receiving service. That's why I said properly not abusing the service that comes their way. Because sometimes it's tough. I know a lot of people that it's tough to receive. Sometimes I find myself in that boat. And it's like, oh, no, I don't want you to think I actually need the help. I don't want you to think that this is something I wouldn't do for you. There's all kinds of ways that we look at this and we say, no, no, you don't need to bother. There takes a certain amount of humility to receive the help from other people. Peter was blocking that. His zeal was actually pride. But it also takes, of course, a lot of humility to provide service, as we're seeing given to us by Jesus. Jesus is putting a new application to this relationship, but he's also demonstrating new mercies. This is the foundation of the relationship that we've been given, which is the grace that none of us deserve. And Jesus is saying, this is why I'm able to give you what I'm going to give you, because I am serving you in this regard. So let's go to, cha- uh, to verse 10. Where Jesus says to him, the one who has bathed, all right, let me finish. I don't think I finished, did I? Hands in my head. Verse nine. Yeah, yeah. I'm with you now. I just glitched there for a second. Ron, you might need to change my battery, so. <laughs> Simon had just got done saying, Lord, then don't stop at my feet, wash my hands and my head. So Jesus' answer to him is, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, Peter, but not every one of you, wink, wink, Judas, for he knew who was to betray him. That's why he said not all of you are clean. It's an important lesson in what Jesus is saying here. That's why foot washing was a great metaphor. It's a good thing it happened then so that we can clearly see what was going on. It would have to change for us in our culture because we're not doing foot washing. But Jesus was demonstrating that there's a cleansing that needs to happen on a daily, regular basis that isn't intended to do the once and for all cleaning that you've already experienced. Being bathed is a separate word. I know it says it in the English, but also in the original language is a separate word than being washed. Being bathed is what Jesus is indicating for us that once you are saved, once you are forgiven of your sins, you're forgiven once and for all. How, well, how do I know that? Because I still get dirty. I still have dust on my feet. And it's like, well, because this is the work of Christ. That's why he's providing the service. He says, I am coming to this with the ability and the, and the power to forgive you once and for all. He says it here in plain, plain language. The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And it almost sounds like he's contradicting a little bit. But, and then when he says, but if you get dust on your feet, you need to wash that off. There is a daily cleansing uh, of, of a portion of us. That is required. Our writer of this gospel, John, also did a short little book called First John. Remember, we pick on him for his lack of creative, creative titles. But in First John 1, he says, if we confess our sins. Now, remember, John is writing to saved, born again, in the family people. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
He had already said leading up to this verse, don't say you don't sin. You'd be lying. So he says, if we confess our sins, though, he's faithful and just to wash our feet, to clean us up along the way, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So often I have conversations with people who doubt that they are saved, who think because of what they have done or what they find themselves doing, there's no way God could forgive me. I must not have been a Christian before, all this kind of stuff. And it's good to evaluate that. I talk with some of my brothers about the idea of how so often people have just prayed some quick prayer and said, see, I'm in, I'm good. And they don't seem to care about all the dust that turns into mud and turns into cake and crust that's that's collecting over their feet. And they're like, oh, yeah, Jesus saved me back in 1988 at a youth thing. And I got up front and I prayed my prayer and everything. And the whole time, the dirt's just like going up to their knees. And it seems to be a, a flipped off conscience as though that doesn't matter whatsoever. But I'm talking more about the people who get a speck of dust on their foot because they're human beings. They're like, oh, it's over. I must have lost and fell out of the favor of God. I'm no longer a child of his. The promise that comes from first John is no, there's there's a time for us to confess our sin regularly before the Lord. And yes, there's a great expectation and a command in the scripture for us to move away from that sin. This isn't even Paul warns us that we don't abuse the grace of God by just continuing to trip over it. That would be the person who's getting the mud on their feet, going up to their knees and not caring at all about it. Just because we say we're sorry doesn't really fix the problem, does it? Confession and repentance is, Lord, I see my sin like you see it. I'm moving away from it by your grace and with your help. I'm moving away from it. Do I want to come back to it every once in a while? Absolutely. I'm not dead. That's why Paul had to say in Romans that we die to our flesh, that we crucify it. It's an act. It's, it's a practice. We do it over and over and over again. You see, so often people say, I don't think I'm saved any longer. Or I must not have meant it hard enough when I prayed it yesterday or something like that. Dirty feet or unrepented sin is the primary cause of doubts of salvation. I don't see anybody who's like trying to serve the Lord, who's trying to love people around them and doing I don't see anybody going, I just don't know if God's really saved me. Typically, we start to doubt our salvation when we're in the depths of our own mess and we're not getting out of it. This is the, the problem of us not regularly confessing the sins, taking inventory and taking it to a loving and forgiving God and saying, clean my feet. I got some dirt on them yesterday. Max Lucado says more than removing dirt, Jesus was removing doubt. When, when we experience the forgiveness, the daily cleansing of Jesus over and over and over again, we grow in our trust of him. He's got me. He, he hasn't abandoned me, hasn't walked away from me. He is really forgiving me that these more, these mercies are new every morning. But Jesus says, not every one of you is clean. It's very clear in the scriptures. We can go back to John six. If we had time to review some of this, it's very clear that Jesus was pegging Judas as he's not really in the family. He, he might have hitched on because of some pragmatic reasons or might have thought he was into all this and stuff. But Judas definitely had mixed motives. And it started with a callous heart that this that Satan eventually hardens and says, I'm going to put it into his heart, as we saw here in chapter 13, to see out the plan to trade in Jesus. And yet Jesus still washes his feet. So what do we do with that? Is it possible for us to take advantage of the love of Jesus without embracing it? You've probably seen it, right? You've seen people that kind of warm up to the fire of all the things that the gospel um, offers or that church life kind of brings. Or maybe we're sitting there going, oh, if I participate in the church, I'll get this, this and this out of life. Or this person's being a really good friend to me. I'm going to try this religion thing for a while and it just doesn't stick. It is quite possible for people to to uh, to take advantage of what Jesus offers without accepting it really in their heart and making it a part of who they are. And Judas is demonstrating that right before our eyes. 
So therefore the devil, the devil is able to take an already hardening heart of Judas and cauterize it beyond rescue. But the contrast comes to us. Who are we going to be with this? In verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? Most likely not, right? You call me teacher and Lord and you're right for so I am. If I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, this is great, great counsel for us here. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I was looking at this this week and I was like, man, I think Jesus just combined. This is what's fun about doing this study in context. I think Jesus just combined the best parts of Martha and Mary. He, he brought Mary's intimacy and care with Martha's service, her rolling up her sleeves attitude and how the, the best parts of them meet in who Jesus is and what he's being for the disciples. And Jesus is saying, this is who I want you to be. This is what I want the identity of my people to be. Jesus had all power, He had all right to punish Judas while he's right before him. Instead, he washes his feet. (laughs) So 2021. Let's see here. People that don't like us. Should we serve them or blast them out of the water? People who commented negatively on my post. Do I serve them or blast them out of the water? People that, oh, I could go on and on, couldn't I? Mask, vaccines, all the things that we kill each other over. Do I serve them or do I win the argument? I'll go back to Lucado because you can be mad at him instead of me. (laughs) Everybody loves Max Lucado, so. Relationships don't thrive because the guilty are punished, but because the innocent are merciful. Good night. I, it's, <laughs> this is, I'm just admitting, this is not easy, is it? Jesus is, he's crafting an identity that is going to make them stand out like sore thumbs. He's saying, they're going to come for you. You do this and they're going to come for you. And this is why being a Christian is more than just putting on a little of Jesus' nice parts. He, he is so radical in his approach. He's not just doing good as a do-gooder. He is laying it all down in the face of those who would take full advantage of him. And he's doing it on purpose. I understand that this is a struggle. I do not say this just to shame you and to say, what's wrong with you people and all this kind of, this is us. This is what we struggle with. Our first reaction to anybody opposing us is to fight back, especially when we're locked and loaded with what we think are the right answers and everything. We take a verse out of context. We say, hey, study to show yourself approved. You know, that, that means we can beat each other over the head with whatever we know and stuff. Jesus' example is just radically different than what our flesh and our instant reactions lend to. And so we've got to really wrestle with this because Jesus is banking an identity of his people on our behavior. And as we've already said, our behavior isn't going to come naturally. Our natural behavior is even to do good things so that you look at me and say, he's a really nice guy. That's not why Jesus did it. He did it to win the war. So it's incumbent on us as we wrap this up to become people of the towel, (laughs) to take on this trait of humility, to change uniforms, to to dress differently when we're engaging in the war. And, And lest you think, and this is not in my notes, but lest you think this is about pacifism, that you can't stand up for anything. We've been saying this all along, that Jesus is He's taking uh, the he's marching right into enemy territory. 
He's not just saying, oh, guys, just drop the weapons because we're not going to do anything here. He's dying to win. If we're going to follow our humble servant leader, we're going to do things like doing good to others, whether they notice it or not. We're going to feel that sting of, hey, they didn't say thank you. And then, and then what that does to our pride and our ego and all this kind of stuff, we're going to be like, that's for you, Lord. I'm dressing differently for battle. I'm going to learn to receive Jesus perfect service in the place of my selfishness that he's going to take on all the things that I can't even do purely. And I'm going to take on his identity and I'm going to thank him for his goodness in our, in my life. That's how my identity is going to change. Let me close with this brief story. A man named Nick, uh, Tsar Nicholas, the first of Russia had a close friend, somebody he admired and respected greatly. And when his son was coming up to honor his friend, he gave his son a, a position of authority in the military, which is always a great reason, right? General to give someone a good post is because you owe someone a favor. <laughs> That's not going to turn out well, is it? And it didn't. This guy was given too much responsibility. He was put over finances and treasury and things like that. Couldn't handle it, wasn't ready for it. Ended up gambling not only his own life earnings, but also started borrowing from the treasury and started gambling that away. And started looking at his debts and realizing there's no way I can get out of this. I am done. It's going to be embarrassing. I've let my my dad's friend down and I'm going to be the laughing stock. He covenants with himself, okay, I'm going to get my revolver, and at midnight tonight, I'm going to end it all. And as he was waiting for midnight to come, he had kind of scribbled on a note, a great debt, who can pay? That was going to be his goodbye letter. He was going to say, this is why you're going to find me like this, because I am in so much debt, there's no way out of this. The czar would kind of make a practice of dressing in commoners clothes or at least like like his soldiers would be. And he'd go around at night and just inspecting things and and looking at the condition of everything and everyone and stuff as much as he could. And he happened upon this building, saw a little light on in one of the rooms, wasn't sure who it belonged to. So he kind of tiptoed and he opened the door and he recognized um, that it was his friend's son. Midnight had come and gone, but he was only just laying there sleeping. He had conked out. And he looks down and he sees the note on there, a debt, a great debt, who can pay? And he signs his name on it after thinking about it and at first wanting to strangle him. And in anger and in revenge, can't you see all I've given you and you're just squandering it? He eventually gives way to pity and compassion. And he just signs his name, Nicholas, underneath it. In the early morning hours, the guy comes to and realizes, oh, I've missed my deadline. And he goes to scramble for his revolver and looks down at his note. And he sees Nicholas's name signed. And he's like, what does that mean? It can't be who I think it is. So remember, he's got signatures in his file cabinets and stuff. He goes and confirms, sure enough, this is Nicholas. And he says to himself, he, he knows my great failure. He, he knows the, the extent and the weight of my debt. But he's undertaken it. He's, he's written it off. He's going to cover it. He's going to pay for it. You see, it was at that moment that he started realizing this is what mercy and grace look like because I can't get out of this hole and I need some kind of benefactor. I need somebody to come and just lift this off of my plate because I am absolutely hopeless. What's the point of living beyond this? And fortunately for him, he had Nicholas to come and say, I will pay the debt. The world would look at Nicholas and be like, you're a fool. What would make you think that this gambler is just going to break his addiction because he had one rough night? You wrote him off again. You just paid for it again. He'll probably get into that same problem tomorrow or next month or next year. It will be just a matter of time because he's got a problem. Nicholas, you fool. Jesus is our humble servant. His actions and his move towards us, his forgiveness of us would look foolish to most people. He knows what he's getting into, though. He knows the responsibility he's taken on. He knows the debt that we can't get out of, and he's paid for it anyway. This is why it should cringe us a little bit that Jesus is our servant, because we don't ever want to abuse that. We don't ever want to rack up the gambling debts again and get ourselves in a place where we can't get ourselves out again. 
But this is the promise of Jesus. I will forgive upon forgiveness upon forgiveness. And it makes no sense to us. We said yesterday at the memorial service that even though cancer and sickness and suffering is very seemingly unfair, the nicest of people or the healthiest of people or the whatever seem to have the same ailments and plagues and sufferings and loss as those that squander their life away, don't appreciate the relationships in their life. All this kind of stuff is extremely unfair. But so is grace. You know, grace is not fair. We, we get it so disproportionately to what we earn because we can't. It's all on him. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the reason why we're thankful to be in his care because we have a debt that we can't pay. It is our absolute prayer that if you haven't met that Jesus today, if you haven't received that little signature on your note with his name underneath your statement of I have too great a debt, who can, who can pay it? If you haven't received that signature on your note, he is waiting for you just to ask him to do that. He's waiting for you to, to simply offer your life in return. This whole thing that I've been doing, all my best thinking's got me to where I am now, that kind of thing. All my sin debt I can't pay, I'm letting it go. I'm going to receive your payment. I'm asking you to lead me and change me. I need a Lord. I need a master. I need a manager of my life, and I clearly can't do it. That offer is available to you. Have you ever just spoken up to the sky? Have you ever just asked him? No fancy words, no rehearsed speeches, no rituals. The Bible says, all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Would you pray with me? Lord God, I want to thank you, Father, for all that you've done. I thank you, God, for the power of your word. Again, the incredible example that you've left your children. Even the example we have from Peter and the negative example we have from Judas and all that's been given to us, Lord, to shape us up. But Lord, ultimately, we're just thankful for your spirit and all that you've provided for us, Lord. So we thank you, God, for paying our debts. We thank you, Lord, for making us a people and, and branding us with your name and giving us new uniforms to wear and a new method and mission to take on. Pray that you'd make us faithful in it, Lord, to honor your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.